another episode of <laughs> the Black and Empowered Podcast. Um, so as you guys know, this is the Black and Empowered Podcast. Welcome back to another great episode of one of the second episodes of our Black Women Academic Series. Um, so if you don't know, if you didn't listen to the other one, which you should go back and listen to, but if you haven't, just to remind you, um, the Black Women Academic Series focuses on amplifying and highlighting the work of amazing Black women scholars who are basically out here doing a damn thing. Like they are changing the world, shaking us up um, left and right. And so we're here to amplify them, provide space for you to know who they are, know what work they're doing that's impactful. And just to hear their journey, hear what they've learned, what they want to give to those coming behind them. Um, and how we can prepare ourselves to impact the field. <laughs> and thank you for joining us, Dr. Child. Of course, I am so happy to be here. This is one of the most exciting things that I am doing all day long. And I get to do a lot of cool stuff, I think, throughout the day. So, oh my gosh, I just can't wait. I, I, I And it's always just amazing to see you and talk to you. I'm so happy to see you. I haven't seen you since the start of the pandemic when we were still doing face-to-face -face visits. So I know. it's been at least two years. Yes. Watching you and Charlie. I know. Remember when I convinced, so I once convinced Aisha to come out to Yale to do a talk for our department and got the date wrong. So she was like, oh, I'm ready to, like, I'll see you soon. And I was like, oh my gosh, I have completely crossed wire. So she was gracious enough. You were gracious enough to like rebook another flight, <laughs> come back out, do the talk. It was amazing. Very interesting. Crazy. I don't even remember the first half of that. I remember the aftermath of that. Oh, yes. After the visit, we kept doing consultations and having ongoing conversations and Two years later, here you are. We're going to talk about that journey to, you know, juggling your calendar and now running an entire internship program and being an admin. So we're going to talk about how much things have changed in these last two years. But to get us started, Dr. Child, you have no idea this is coming. We're going to play a game. Okay. To warm up. <laughs> okay. And you have a kid. You should be really good at this. It's called the Song Association <laughs> Challenge. Okay. What does her having a kid have to do with this? I don't know if this will be children. When you have a child, you take everything as it comes. You keep it rolling. You keep it moving. You question nothing. Got it. Okay. Sense of nothing. And okay. what, everything is a song, right? I know you and Charlie are listening to songs in the morning on the way to daycare. You're singing jingles to her at night. We're tapping into your creative energy and your creative spaces right now. Okay. So song Association Challenges is both of those things. So the way it works is that I'm going to say a word. You can decide if you want to go first or second. Okay. Uh, and then all you have to do is take 10 seconds, think of a song that has that word in the title or the lyrics, and then sing it as gorgeously and beautifully and harmoniously as you can. I cannot no promise any of the latter half of that, <laughs> but I will sing it. <laughs> How about we add enthusiastically? I will do that. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Okay. Um, I'm going to go second though. Just go okay. Thank you. <laughs> I just need to see how this plays out. See how it goes, no pressure, I say. Um, Brianna, we're gonna let your word today be, because we need these vibes, your word today is going to be happy. 
because I'm happy. Hey, period. Period. Y'all know the song for real. You got it. Yes. I was just watching the, that Yeezy documentary, um, that Kanye West documentary and saw him meet Pharrell. And I was like, oh my gosh, I don't know if you've seen it or not. Everything comes full circle, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. When you first recognize genius and then you practice it. That documentary just blew my mind that he just knew the entire time what was coming for him. It was really the persistent. I only watched it because I was on Peloton and Robin Arsan, who is my girl, 100%, 1 million percent, was like, think what you want about Kanye West. And I was like, we all, in fact, do and will. Um, and, you know, the, the persistence with which he approached his work was like nothing she had ever seen and was like, that was inspiring. So I was watching it and I was like, this is really inspiring. I don't know that I would have come up against all of these very, although maybe we sort of have. And so let's, let me sing my song really fast before we get into too much. Let me sing my song. Because you know what, perhaps we have, and, and we're going to talk about this really in that he had some vision that other people couldn't see. And I know that you and I have had many conversations about grant writing and about publishing and about training students where, you know, we, we have to keep that vision in the back of our minds, even when we don't see it happening, even when we don't know that we have the people or the skills around. But like you're saying, we just got to keep persisting. Right, right. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So real. And stop stalling. Brianna's going to give you a word. Okay, I really am. I'm ready. Go. <laughs> Um, your word is green. What'd you say? Green. Green? Mm-hmm. Um, oh. oh, this is a hard one. I need a new word. Second word. What? That's not how this goes. What's the song that starts, what's the song that has green in it? First song that came to mind was Green Eyes by Erica Badu. Erica Badu, yeah. Oh, I don't know that My song. My eyes are green. I don't know that one. Okay, so I should did that one for me. I need a new word. Oh, oh word. my goodness. Oh. Give, me, right, one more give word. me one more. Okay, okay. For the culture, I guess. Um, Something from Encanto, basically. That's what I need. She we said, if you don't say Bruno. No, no, no. <laughs> That's what I need. We don't talk about green, no. <laughs> we don't talk about green, no. Like, so two separate words. <laughs> Come on, remix. Come on. It's basically got to be from Encanto. Okay. Um, let's see. Ah. Black. Oh, wait. Go ahead. Go, go. Black. Black? Mm hmm. What else can I do? <laughs> bring it in, bring it in. What else can I do? Which is like this message from Encanto of like, what else can I do? I just did something incredible and it was unexpected. And she's like, I just did something unexpected. <laughs> something sharp, something new. That's how you feel as a black person in academia almost all the time. Right? Well, hold on, you need to sing the word. Where is black in the song? It's not in the song, but it's like empowered. Oh it's my empowered gosh, black. she's rewriting the rules. No, 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 no. Time out, time out, time out, time out, time out. No, 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 no. I'm getting trying to get to it with yeah, you. Right? No, I literally was sitting here like, come on. Why am I getting colors? Give me something emotions. Okay. Uh, no, that's not, no. <laughs> 
we can't. No, you can't select your words. You're literally trying to make this game. No, I'm actually sweating though. <laughs> I'm literally sweating, and it's because and this I'm in this magazine that I'm fanning myself with. <laughs> what a flex! That's such a subtle flex. I'm in the yes. magazine okay, that I'm what's fanning black? myself with. Um, black and yellow, black and yellow. There you go. Right. <laughs> it's yellow, right? Okay, I did it. That one count. It took you an hour and a half to get Ooh, there. Really? Who's the video editor? Cut some of that. <laughs> get me out of here. <laughs> cut, cut me half. Cut half of me off of there. And look yeah, at me overriding. Leave every one of those seconds <laughs> <laughs> in here. You guys, that was super cute. Wait, no, 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 no. Hold on. You gotta get a word. Oh, so, I thought I did green, but okay, you can give me a word. Green. You can give me no. a word. Yeah, Dr. Charles, give it to me. Mm-hmm. Okay, can I, I'm going to give you a word. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. I'm going to do something that actually has like a, okay, here we go. I'm not going to already be thinking of a song too. Moving. Moving, move on down, move on down the road. Move. <laughs> any move, any type of variation. Oh, move on down, move on down the road. All right, move, that counts. <laughs> yes, it does. I was thinking like, move your body. It, but maybe that's even not a song that I know. <laughs> I feel like I know, move your body, shake your body, sure. Mm-hmm. Not move, move, change the whole exactly day. what I was thinking. I was exactly thinking. Which song? Move in what certain word here? Get out of yes. the way. Hey, get out of the way. Okay, that way. Come on, Atlanta. Yeah, you would. You would. Yes. Out. That's a good one, actually. Yes, because Ludacris was in that documentary, too. We'll take it. We'll take it. We'll take it. Soup's cute. Soup's cute. So, Brie. Typically, right now, we do Black Excellence. I wanted to check Mm -hmm. in with you because I haven't checked in with you um, on how you're feeling. If you want to do Black Excellence, certainly we can do that. Um, And or we could just take a moment to talk about healing and thriving despite Mm -hmm. some of the ongoing racial stressors and kind of domestic terrorist acts that it seems like are happening right now as well yeah um hmm. I feel like one of the big things with black excellence is remembering that being black is always excellent um even when the world makes us feel like it's not it's always excellent Mm -hmm. um and I feel like that reminder is important now it'll always be important and I think I feel like we should just take a moment of silence um, for the lives that were taken um, over the weekend Um, because we live in a world where being black is is what it is, right? Like, I feel like we're always struggling to find the words to explain how it makes us feel or to feel numb when we encounter having to see these repeated attacks um, on Black lives. And so I think being able to just take a moment of silence for the lives that were lost over the past weekend, but also the lives that have been lost um, in general 
over time um, and recognize again that being black is always excellent. So even if the people at school tell you that it's not, remember that it is. Um, so we can just take a little time. And after you take your time, remind yourself that it'll always be okay. Remind yourself that we can get through these moments together. Um, you are not alone in these moments. And hopefully this podcast reminds you how excellent being Black is. Um, and our other episodes remind you how excellent it is to be Black. Um, go listen to Beyonce. Go listen to Kendrick's new album. Go listen to all the great things in the world that have been produced by Black excellence. Um, don't forget, you're important and you matter. It's a really important reminder, Bree. I appreciate that. Mm -hmm. Definitely, Dr. Childs and I were talking before you got on about how we try to kind of protect our time and protect our space on the weekends and how that's, you know, time that we have afforded ourselves now that we're faculty and, um, you know, we logged on this morning and there's news about Buffalo and we're shocked and we're saddened and we persist, right? We do continue to do our work. We check in with students, we check in with ourselves we hug our babies a little bit tighter. And right, I think it's important that those boundaries that we put up for ourselves when things are going well, we remember you can use those at, in, during times like this. If you wanna log off of social media, if you wanna mute certain words, if you want to you know, protect your space in that way, certainly feel free and take advantage of that, that freedom that you do have as black people to remind yourselves of what's important, find joy in every day, find purpose and meaning in the work that you're continuing to do. And like you said, just refuse to let racism win. I think that a part of these kind of racist agendas are, you know, to take black lives, right? But also to instill fear, to instill hopelessness and helplessness in those of us who are encountering it. So the excellence of that, right, is to say, despite this, weekend and despite this ongoing stressor and ongoing kind of systems that we're up against, um, we, we do have these spaces that we've been able to curate, that we've been able to utilize to help heal ourselves, but also to amplify the voices of those of us who are doing that work. And certainly we do want to, right, take time today to amplify the voice, to amplify the work and the experience and the journey of our guest. Dr. Amber Childs. I am so happy and so proud to introduce her. She is a licensed clinical psychologist and assistant professor of psychiatry in Yale School of Medicine. 
Dr. Childs is Director of Training for the Yale Doctoral Internship in Clinical and Community Psychology. So if you're a grad student who's interested in going to grad school, you can certainly at the end of that get some great internship training. It's a clinical year. It's very intensive. And Dr. Childs here could be one of those people who are in, in, uh, in charge of directing that training that you are experiencing. She's also co-director of the Division of Quality and Innovation within Yale's New Haven Psychiatric Hospital. So this just means that she's a member of a medical staff and she is co-chair of the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee there, um, as well as within the internship program. So Dr. Childs wears a lot of very important hats. We are here today to talk about her journey to being able to wear these hats, to give back to training, to give back via grant funding that she's been able to secure, and to talk about her trajectory in that way. So again, welcome, Dr. Childs. We are so happy to have you. Welcome. Oh my gosh, I'm so happy to be here. And thank you so much, Bree and Aisha, for the opening remarks around um, just the reminder of Black excellence. I think it's a message that so many people, you know, myself included, had really internalized a lot of oppressive, negative ideas about what it means to be Black. And that's a common experience that I find when I, I talk with other Black people. And so I really I appreciate any opportunity to act opposite that and to really step into the reality of what it means to be black, which is to say that it's, it's excellent. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm still in that place of kind of processing and digesting so much of what happened over the weekend. Um, yeah. and so really appreciate the space to think that through and reflect a little bit. Well, speaking and now I'm excited to talk about myself too. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm about to make you do it. And I'm going to make you reflect and think far, far back. And this is over a decade ago. Yes. Um, kind of, I'm struck because you already said, right, to act opposite of that. And I think that that's a part of the foundation that we got at Georgia State University in that, yeah, we're feeling angry. Yeah, we're feeling any of these feelings. How do we act opposite of that in order to impact and impart the same change that we want to see. So if you're angry, how can you fight in a in a way that best uses your skills, that best helps to eradicate what it is that's making you angry, in this case, anti-Black racism. But certainly, you have your own trajectory that started at Georgia State University. And yes. I want to have you think back there to your early training and just talk to us about uh, what that early experience was in academia and how it contributed to the goals that you have today. Yeah, I whenever I meet with trainees who are coming to interview for the internship program and I see that they were a McNair scholar, I always end up having this conversation of like, oh my gosh, I don't know where I would be right now unless I had been a McNair scholar. I think, I think maybe just knowing myself and who I am and the way that I like approached the world that I would have been doing something that I also love. I don't, I don't know what it would have looked like. I'm not sure, mm -hmm. but I will, I will actually say because I had grown up in this experience, not necessarily in a home experience, but like in a, in a sort of academic experience all throughout my life where sort of high producers, people who engaged in excellent work, people who really demonstrated academic promise, if you will, that was equated with not being black. That was equated with, with being white, quite frankly. And so, and there was also this piece of that, that was internalized. And I think the messaging that was really clear over time was that 
you are a special black person because you are smart in this particular way. And this is not something that we see in other black people. So it's this kind of like holding up and setting apart and simultaneously isolating from other, all of the other incredibly excellent black people, right? Cause we're not just an N of one. We're not just mm -hmm. the only right best person. And so when I went into undergrad, I had no idea about the McNair program. And i I had internalized this message, not sort of saying to myself, like, I'm the best black person who's in the smartest black person, but this idea of like, if I seek out other black people, does that diminish the accomplishments that I have? Or does that somehow diminish me or not allow me to participate in the same way? So I don't know that I would have taken advantage of McNair programs or other things until I had become a little bit more advanced in my own racial identity development and things along those lines. So when I jumped into the McNair program. I actually originally didn't get into the McNair program. Did you know this story? Oh, no, uh-uh. I didn't I actually get into, I did not actually get into the McNair program originally. So I had applied and um, I of course was like, oh, I don't know if I qualify for this, right? Cause thinking just so many things, but, um, and I interviewed with a director at the time. And then I didn't hear back and I didn't hear back. So then I wrote to the director and I was like, can you help me understand what's going on? Can you share an update? And I remember that the director called me to their office and essentially told me this message of like, cause I, when I was interviewing, I, I think I had worked really hard to advocate for myself and to really yeah. showcase my skills and to talk about what I could contribute and what I wanted to learn and how I thought this experience would be so incredible for me. Um, and they've said to me, like, I really hope you could tone it down. Like, if you were to come to this program, would you be able to, like, tone all of that down? Because we really want to make sure that you would fit in. And so I, I thought to myself, oh, no, am I having this experience where I'm made to think that I'm not going to fit with my own peer group of mm -hmm. other people of color and other people who have come from that situation? Um, but luckily, I, I ended up enrolling in the in the program and had a really great experience and of course was able to meet Aisha and meet other people and then have this connection to understanding about conferences and how to apply to graduate schools and how to really think about the application process and came away with some incredibly invaluable tools and then I think actually living out skills like when we were in Orlando uh, Florida for that conference <laughs> and I still think about this story of um when there was, I, I must've been having stress dreams or something. So we were at a conference, a biomedical conference. Right. Do you remember this? I know what you're about to say. I, please tell your story. I do remember this because I think about it periodically. You do? So, so Never I to a new place. must have been having stress dreams. Aisha and I were roommates at this Southern, Re I think it was SREB's SREB maybe, but it was a biomedical conference in Orlando. They took us to Disney. I mean, how incredibly lucky, right? It was Abercamps. Yep, yeah. I think you're right, Aisha, it was yeah. Abercamps. So yeah. we went to Disney Abercamps. and we were, they were encouraging us and teaching us how to network, right? Like this is how you go up and you speak to people and you do these different things. So it was like after the first day, we're sleeping the middle of the night. <laughs> <laughs> I shoot out of the bed, like Frankenstein out of the bed and just go, <laughs> like screamed at the top of my lungs. Much louder, much louder. <laughs> Relieved. And then laid back down and went to bed. 
we woke up in the morning. Aisha and I were like going through our usual stuff. We're getting ready. I was like showing her what I was going to wear for my conference outfit and asking her to help me choose between <laughs> pants and that pants. And then I go, did I wake up last night? And like, this is like 20 minutes into getting ready, right? We're just pretending like everything's normal. It's like, did I wake up last night and scream? And she goes, you did. Oh my gosh. I thought I dreamed that. <laughs> and I think about that now all the time. Oh um, my goodness. You definitely it? panic screamed in the middle of the night. You definitely panic screamed. And you know what? I have two memories from that conference. One being your panic scream. And two, do you remember when I got in trouble? No. Great. Great. Dr. Oh, Gray the pillow. The pillow. What? <laughs> I, I remember the pillow. OMG. We have... So let me say that Dr. Childs got told to turn, tone it down before getting into the program. I got told to turn it down in front of everyone. You, Brianna, and this is your mentor right now telling you this story you have not heard. I went to my first conference. I'm so embarrassed in 2022. I went to my first conference and had never had an experience like this before. These pillows were of the clouds, okay? They were memory foam plus feather plus, you know, the kind that never gets warm. And I just could not believe that we had access to these pillows. So I took one, okay? I stole the pillow. You took it like put it in your luggage? I put it in my suitcase and I was taking it home. <laughs> not knowing there was anything wrong with this. And I told the same director that I had a pillow on me. <laughs> not you told on yourself. I didn't oh, know. I thought it would be like an illegal. It, when I tell you it was the biggest deal in the world. I got scolded in front of everyone. I was making McNair look bad. I had to write a letter to the hotel apologizing for taking their pillow. I had to send the pillow back, bruh. You know when you steal candy from the store and your parents make you go back to the store? I had to mail this pillow back. It was the biggest example that I will never forget of don't have us out here in these streets looking crazy, but also remember who you are representing. So right. Amber and I, or Dr. Childs and I were on completely opposite ends of the spectrum where she went in, she was talented 10, she was top 1%. And I was in there like, look, I'm just happy to be here. Hey, they told me I could come for free. <laughs> no. Oh my goodness. But you know, that conference, how, but we learned how to. So much. We learned so much. Right. Don't you think how to sit at a conference table yeah. and know how to use the silverware correctly, yes. right? And yes. know which drink. How many of you listening right now, if you were to pull up, right, to a table that had formal place settings, which water glass is your water glass? I would yeah. not have known. And in fact, sometimes I still have. Do you do this? For a moment of panic. <laughs> They taught us the B and the D when you do this, the B is your bread and the D is where your drink is. So the drink is over here. We learned those basic skills from McNair. And that is, yes, yes. I agree 100%. Undergrad experience, highlight. Incredible. <laughs> and, but you know, now so. just even having this conversation and looking back on it, I had a mentor who was willing to take me on and take on my work. And now mentoring trainees, teaching trainees, you know, I recognize the level of commitment and time and just pouring into a person that that really takes if you're going to do it well. And so shout out to Dr. Diana Robbins. I'm so grateful to you for, for that work. And in fact, I would never have recognized it at the time, but the work that I was doing at that time was, was looking at 
racial disparities in diagnosis for Mm -hmm. toddlers who were diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder. And at the time it was known, and it still is known that there are these disparities in time to diagnosis, right? But Mm -hmm. um, in terms of trying to understand what that meant, people were really thinking about it like, well, well, caregivers are not bringing their kids, you know, to providers or really sort of thinking, um, about all of the reasons in which black people or people of color were somehow delinquent or deficient. And I was like, I wonder if people are not listening in the same way that they're listening to the feedback that they get from white parents. And so I really started to think, you know, how are parents talking about the behaviors and the concerns and how is that understood within a particular context? Um, And if we can understand something about how they might be communicating, does that sort of unlock for us a different path of inquiry that we can begin to tackle? So is it that people are talking more about these sort of externalized presentations, but that feedback, because of the way that people look at Black kids, right, who are quote unquote acting up or whatever Mm -hmm. it might be, they're not registering that in the same way. And so that work is actually work that's like, I just made recently a Google uh, Scholar profile because one of my like now colleagues and friends was like, girl, you made a Google Google Scholar profile. <laughs> like, oh, do I? Oh, no. Um, it's one you of the H-factor papers now. in my like portfolio, uh, you know, yeah. a paper that later came out of that. And I presented that work at Evercams. Wow. Wow. Look at that full circle. Right. Right. Hopefully you can send this to Dr. Robbins. That's so important too. And I certainly have been reaching back to my undergrad mentor and just saying, Thank you so much. And I see now how that early research even built my vocabulary, but showed me how to just take any program of research and think about how to integrate my values and my areas of interest, the mechanisms that I'm interested in into that larger project. Um, And I remember your work. Your work was on vocabulary and you were looking at like, what does somebody say about a frozen cube of water, right? Ice. I remember that word. Yes. (laughs) Okay. So yeah, you have, you have a memory on you. Yeah. That was with Dr. Williams who left Georgia State and now has returned to Georgia State. She's in education. So we've been talking recently and absolutely that was my first ever first author publication. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Actually, a trainee took the work that I had done back then and was like, oh, work, I, w- I would love to, to make this my work. You know, I want to not make, not take your work, but I want to continue to pursue this. Yeah. Um, and so I was like, oh, wow. Is this what it's like when your work kind of lives on and people are asking these same kinds of questions and are, mm-hmm. you know, you've set something in motion that now people are coming back to and revisiting and, and taking forward. It was really, it was really kind of cool circle, full circle moment, like you said. Yes, yes. So we're going to call, and you know what, we're still looking for a name for this episode and it might be something about full circle moments in your career um, because that's that's really important and I think impactful, especially as we have a grad student here who has been thinking about, right, how to expand her own program of research and she's done it so beautifully from, right, understanding racial stress and trauma to understanding strong Black womenhood and how you can expand the healing processes and even post-traumatic growth to say, right, I've experienced all these stressors, but, and in spite of those, I am able to recover, to restore, and to thrive. So we really appreciate that, that kind of um, thinking back on your program of research as well. 
Yeah, absolutely. I'm also just really energized and excited to see so many scholars. And not to say that this hasn't historically been the case. It's always been the case that people are looking at um, race and, and really trying to bring that forward in academia. But I think historically, not I think, I know, historically in academia, and maybe even the reds of this are there now, people have really tried to diminish the value of looking at these kinds of um, pieces of work and thinking of it as sort of less than mm -hmm. other kinds of scholarly increase. It's not getting funded as much and it's not certainly held as in, in high regard. And so I remember um, having really internalized so much of these messages in my early life. And so really worked hard to, I was like, no, I'm gonna do research on autism. And then of course, the values found their way back into the work anyway, right? So I'm ending up kind of looking wow. at what's happening with parents and like what's going on with my community of people who are not showing up in this treatment room. Um, and so really I resisted for a while, like I'm not gonna be taken seriously and not because it was just what I was thinking, like, but this was, you know, I would see people not getting promoted or people not getting funded or, you know, whatever it may be. And so I'm just really energized now about like, not just the courage and bravery, but also the ways in which people are saying like, no, this, we demand that this wow. be taken. Wow. The kind of seriousness that it has and that people really, really begin to stretch their thinking and incorporate like what we know to be true. Um, about uh, about black experience, about all you know, BIPOC experience. So I'm excited for you, Brianna. I, I think you're like coming in at a at a really really rich time. Yeah, and I think this time is different also because we are in the age of social media as well. Mm -hmm. And so the way social media has transformed, when we think about like academic Twitter, and we think about places like that where you see so much like support, but you also see how people make it a point to amplify the experiences and the research and the work that black people are doing, the BIPOC community is doing, but also like overall, like, hey, we're all struggling. We're all trying to figure it out. Hey, I need this data set. Who knows someone who can access this data set? So being able to in some ways kind of break down some of the gatekeeping that has been yes. consistently alive in academia and say, we don't have to do that. We don't have to keep feeling like we have to one up the other black person. We can all eat off the same plate and we can all excel and let's work together to do that. Um, and so I'm happy to be able to see that of like, let's work together versus working against each other. Um, and I feel like a lot of that for me started for me, it is my experience at Spelman of being in a space where everybody was eating. We were all eating, like we were all excelling. That is the culture. And so I was like, okay, we all, okay, we're all, we all doing this. Yes. All right. Okay, like who put us in competition? Why is this happening? Racism right. is big, right? No, truly. truly. Racism is a distraction. Like it is to distract you. It is to distract right. you from the things that you deserve. It is to distract you from the things that you are worthy of having. And so a lot of times we feel like we have to compete with the next person when it's like, you don't have to compete. It's enough for everybody, but society makes us think it's not. Um, and so I'm really appreciative of your experience, um, especially when you talk about McNair, because I did a similar thing at Spelman, um, which is very similar to McNair. And I went to Abercams, 
multiple times. So it was like, oh, wow. okay, this is very, this, I feel seen, I feel heard. Um, because a lot of times people don't, one, know how to access these resources, wow. but then also realizing how much preparation comes from undergrad for these next steps. Like a lot of times it's just like, some people think you just come into it with it, but a lot of it is that undergrad support, the mentorship, the conversations about how to present at a conference, how to write a research paper, doing you know a senior thesis, those types of things really prepare you for what it is to be a graduate student and what kind of comes after that. Um, yeah. Brianna, feel, did you start? Yes. And did you start this by being like, now we're in the age of social, me social media. How old does she think we are, Dr. We're not on AOL Instant Messenger anymore, baby. We're on. <laughs> now that said, I did literally, I was yesterday years old when I set up my first Twitter. That was like six months ago. This is trying to force me to tweet. Exactly. But exactly. that's what I'm saying. Like, I'm talking about like, that side of yeah, like no, social media wrong, in the yeah. sense of like there because academic twitter is like it's fire like I sometimes like my academic twitter better than my other twitter because there's so much knowledge there's so much support resources like it's so much that you can get and I even think about Instagram like there's even an academic side to Instagram and so being able to access like our lab being able to access resources and material that in some ways feels mystical and it feels so far out of reach. Now it's making a lot of this stuff digestible. Everybody can get to it. All you literally have to do is type the hashtag academic Twitter and you come up with all these different things. Yeah. Is um, there a, like a black academic Twitter or is mm -hmm. academic Twitter just for black? No, there is, right? Yeah, See, so I, like there is academic Oh my Twitter gosh, I'm learning so much. <laughs> I, me too, look at me like, yeah. I'm literally going to be right taking notes. <laughs> yeah, like there's academic Twitter, there's black academic Twitter. Right. Um, yeah. And so like once you, and it all depends on who you follow, what they retweet, but once you start getting into the people, it automatically, your feed automatically starts changing. The algorithm changes. And now you're seeing more Black people. Like I know now that it's graduation season, I've just been seeing a lot of people getting yeah. hooded and getting their degrees and yeah. stuff yeah. like that. Um, so once you get on that side, it's a dark world, man. It's a dark world. But it's really, right? For, it for those undergrad listeners who are not sure about, you know, how do I start a program of research? What is McNair anywhere? Anyway, mm -hmm. I do think that these sorts of spaces is what gives that access. Dr. Charles, I can't even remember how I learned about McNair, but I remember feeling like I was too late, right? Like I remember mm -hmm. thinking, yes. whoa, I should have learned about this two, three years ago. And I, I scrambled at the end, right? But had we had someone or some, you know, academic Twitter, we would have, you know, had access to these resources mm -hmm. earlier. Yes. I, and I, I almost remember, did we have this kind of conversation when we both started? Because I think saying, we're right. We're old for this. Thinking, wow. We're junior. We're seniors. Are right. we, have we missed? You're behind. Yeah. Right. The prime time to plant the seeds in the ground. And so for anybody who's listening, the answer to that is no, you're not you too late. Not. 
You have not missed it. I, I, I wonder if I found out by accident, I think I saw a flyer somewhere on a bulletin board. Um, and then of course, immediately counted myself out because I saw like what the requirements were and was like, oh no, I, I, and then I, I took a chance and applied. And I think actually Diana Robbins had encouraged me to apply, right. but imagine, right. This, what you're describing Brianna is like, if we start to equalize access to things, yes. then we'll really see, right. Like mm -hmm. what happens for people, like what, what the fruits of people's imagination and interests could really be because they're not these barriers to the most basic things for us even me I mean figuring out how to ask somebody for a letter of recommendation wow you know all of these different things that are so foundational to being yeah. able to move forward like the the hidden curriculum in some ways mm -hmm. of and now I there are new hidden curricula of like how to negotiate for salaries and how yep. to negotiate for space Yes, title, a, a number of different things um, that are, the more that people have access to that information, I think, you know, it, the better it is for everybody, but it's also, it's been interesting. Okay, I'm off on 12 side streets right now. Who knows? Those are the streets that we want to go down. I was just about to say, you must be following our episode notes, so we don't know. We do actually have to, to talk to you about your trajectory. So how did you gain access to any little gems that you wish you would have knew, but you found out, and now you were able to share those? Um, and that can be from undergrad to grad school you went to the university of tennessee at knoxville you can talk about your own internship experience as well mm -hmm. um just kind of anything that helped you along the way that that would be beneficial to our audience so our audience is undergrad as well as grad students as well as kind of early career professionals okay you know, I'm having the image right now of that Snoop Dogg speech where he's like, I'd like to thank me. Me right now. I'd like to thank myself for always being there for me and always showing up for me, et cetera, et cetera. And I will go ahead and say, um, I would not be where I am without the help and support and mentorship and guidance. Even right now, I am so fortunate. I'm so lucky to be in community with colleagues that I trust and that I can tell about, you know, th this is what's happening for me. This is what I'm confused about. This is what I'm concerned about. Can you put me in contact or communication with X or Y or Z? I remember, so even Dr. Metzger and I had this discussion where I said to her, like, I, I don't know how to get in contact with this person. Maybe like, do you know of somebody who knows this person and you can do a soft introduction? And Dr. Metzger was like, you have an email address that anybody in the world would respond back to, right? And so it's just kind of having those mirrors to be like, okay, this is real. And at the same time, I am going to give myself some credit because I think that just inherent to me is this um, drive and persistence that um, I have been surprised by over time. Um, and that I'm so grateful for, and I'm not sure what I did to have it happen. I'm sure it was like earned through experience after experience after experience, but I, I faced a lot of challenges. Um, I had a lot of privilege, you know, in terms of going to undergrad and then being able to afford when I was on in graduate school, um, taking internships and different, you know, experiences to get my clinical hours in and things like that. But I also had a lot of challenges that I faced. Um, and so feel really grateful and, and proud about navigating those. So I went to um, 
the way that I found about different graduate schools, I was like, okay, I know for sure I need to stay in the Southeast. I was still really afraid of leaving the Southeast at that time. And now I'm like, oh my gosh, I uh, will see you guys later. <laughs> so I, I knew I wanted to apply to places in the Southeast. I was also dating who's my now husband. Um, I was dating, so Tucker was my uh, boyfriend, a longtime boyfriend at the time, now husband. Um, and I knew he was going to be going to graduate school in Georgia. So I really wanted to keep, keep things there. Um, so I found the university of Tennessee, my parents are, and family are actually from Tennessee, originally Tennessee and Kentucky area. And I had always been a volunteer when I was growing up. So that was the team that we had like cheered for. So I just on a whim one day was like, let me look at the university of Tennessee and see what they have going on there. And they had this. Um, clinical program. They also had some opportunities for child work because they had just hired in a new psychologist there, but they also had a counseling program that was doing a lot of work in social justice and, and uh, health equity early work in that, in that time. Um, and I both at that time knew like, okay, I'm still feeling resistant to that, but I'm not sure, but I was very intrigued and I wanted to be near and around that kind of work and those kinds of conversations. And I also just didn't imagine that it was possible to be having those discussions in an academic space where everybody was white talking about it. So I was like, let me see what's happening uh, there at, at UT. But I went and my, my graduate advisor left and went to a new university in the first year after the first year. And so if you, if people who are listening to this now who are maybe in a doctoral program and um, you know, you think about that first year of training where you are fresh into the program, you're really probably going to be working on your master's thesis or project. Everything is um, you know, you're like a little baby deer, like getting your like leggings or getting your le your footing. Um, and then you lose your advisor to another place. So that's an experience where I felt like, okay, I'm going to just, I have to decide how I want to continue to show up in this program. And mm -hmm. so I decided for myself, this is going to be my chance to take as much space as wow. I can and want to, and really let myself imagine, like if I, what do I want to be working on? Cause now there's no lab, right? There's no home base. I had somebody who was willing to take me on in their lab. They actually did substance use work. But what that meant was I had this sort of token, this ticket, this pass, if you will, to be able to decide and craft what my experience was going to be. I knew and had the skills to be able to stay in good communication and good contact with the advisor who would, had agreed to take me on after she had gone to a different institution. So I think I was like creating and carving out an experience for myself and not realizing that wow. that would be the early skill work that then when I came to Yale and started to understand like, okay, this is what I'm interested in. This is what I'd like to be working on. How do I start to carve a path for myself and create that for myself? Who are the people that I need to be in connection with to do it? So I think that early experience which was very tragic. I almost was like, do I, am I going to have to move to Kansas? I can't move to Kansas. Who <laughs> like, you know, I, I, I know. And I remember saying to my advisor, she's like, well, why wouldn't you move to Kansas? Cause I'm not Dorothy. <laughs> and I said to her, Paula, I'm a black, I don't go to Kansas. <laughs> like <laughs> I don't go to Kansas. Oh um, my gosh. I did not know any of this. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. We needed this. We needed this. 
So I, um, I decided for myself, I kind of made a list in my mind of like, these are the things that I am going to do. And I decided right out the gate that I was like, I'm going to finish my dissertation before I go on internship. And I was like, Mm -hmm. and actually I sort of had this reaction formation where I was like, I'm going to do everything the best. And I was like, actually, I'm going to finish it before I apply for internship. And I'm going to publish it. Right. So I was like, I'm finishing that before I go on internship and I'm going to get, you know, this number of publications. And I was like, and I'm going to Emory for internship. So I am going to look at that school and prepare everything that I need to prepare to position me to be able to go to Emory. And uh, and then I did. I um, I didn't go to Emory, but what I did do was (laughs) I defended my dissertation before I applied for internship and uh, and I worked really hard to be able to do that. Um, and uh, I sort of did this, you know, state state to state collaboration. And now I'm like, oh, I can do big collaborations with Come on, R01. Yeah. <laughs> like places. Um, wow. Did this collaboration, applied for Emory and then got there and realized like things are very different than what they look like on a on a document. And I realized like, this is going to be my chance to now move out of what I've always known Mm -hmm. and really start to explore and really give myself permission to um, enjoy training a little bit. I don't know that I, I mean, I think I sort of was always on this grind and I think the Mm -hmm. ability to kind of step into a place of curiosity and sort of step a little bit away from what has always been this really pragmatic tone that I've had to approach things with. Cause like, you know, I'm like, I'm not staying here past four years because this is how long my scholarship lasts and I'm not paying for a victory lap of like time that I'm staying here. Um, so, but to be able to let myself explore felt like a new kind of freedom um, and a new opportunity. And so when I started really going out on the internship trail, I went to this, I was like, I'm gonna apply to a bunch of places in the Northeast, like just to see, right? And so I was getting back um, I think I went to almost every place that I had applied to, to interview um, and started to realize then like, oh, am I really putting in work? Am I really like, wow, people are giving back to me what I'm giving into this and letting me know that your work is valuable. We want to meet you. We want to talk to you about what you do. Um, so I went to this place called the Institute of Living in Hartford. It was the very last place on the internship trail. And I, I remember thinking like uh, the veil had come down on a lot of these uh Ivy League institutions that I was like, oh my gosh, like this is definitely where I have to be. This is where I have to get to. The veil had come down and I was like, oh no, this does not match the reality. I got to this place, the IOL, and I was like, oh my gosh, Mm. this is the place. This is the place where um, I'm going to sort of have this enriched experience. I'm going to do all of the, I'm going to have inpatient experience. I'm going to have hospital-based experience. Um, I'm going to work in this place in Hartford where there is going to be a population of kids that I had not necessarily seen before when I was at the University of Tennessee. Um, And I knew it was going to be my top choice. Um, And I rated it as my top choice. And I was so, so lucky to match there. And then I got there and a lot was going on. (laughs) Of course, always, always. But it felt right and it was Mm value-based. So it can't go wrong, right? Yes. Yeah. 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 So Diana Robbins... My graduate school or undergraduate school mentor went to University of Connecticut. 
And she actually then went to train at Yale at the Child Study Center, which is a different department than I'm in. I'm in the Department of Psychiatry. And for most folks who might be listening to this, they're separate departments. Um, but she, I remember her talking to me about like, why don't you apply to University of Connecticut for graduate school? And I remember saying to her like, Connecticut, where even <laughs> is that? I don't even know where that is on the map. Like it's one of those small states that there's a line drawn out to it. I could never pick it out. In fact, now I still like lightly struggle to, to find it on the map. Um, but now it's so interesting, like the full circle I wrote to Diana and was like, isn't this wild? Like I am in Connecticut. I am training students that come, we train students that come from UConn. I'm at, I'm here at Yale. It's just so interesting, like how it all ended up um, working out. But when I was on postdoc, I decided to do postdoc at IOL as well. And when I was on postdoc there, I had the very unfortunate, but I think it's a common experience, unfortunately, of having a very racist, um, supervisor. Mm. And I didn't mm. clock it as racism until somebody else observed it back to me because I'm so used to working as hard as I possibly can. Zero margin for, for error. I know you talked about this at the top, Dr. Metzger, of like, you know, working twice as hard, right? Always, always being sort of beyond reproach. And mm. I just could not understand or make sense of these experiences. And I think I was afraid to call it really was exactly I think that's right I was really because I I was like this is going to be so devastating that this is what this is but I sort of knew that that's what it was um and a a person was like do you think it could be that that supervisor is racist and I was like I do think that that's what this is um and so really had a difficult time really had a difficult time um but and those lessons of what do I do when the person in leadership, my values don't align with that person. Mm -hmm. How do I still stay consistent, true and honor what I believe to be true, what I believe to be right? How do I speak truth to power in these situations? How do I navigate these, this sort of power hierarchical um, dynamic? The lessons that I learned are things that I carry forward with me now and things that I hope that I never would never perpetuate Mm. with trainees that I'm working Mm. with. I actually teach about this, um, you know, to trainees when I'm in supervision with them about how to really think through these issues. Um, Can you give us some? Give us some. We need some of those lessons. We need some of those um, how-tos from your perspective. Yeah. So how to, number one, believe yourself. Mm. Mm is the first thing because I think I spent a lot of time not believing that my experience was the experience that was Mm -hmm. happening. And so that not believing myself, not being able to recognize it or fully formulate it in my own mind, allow for it to be what it was, kept me separate from resources. It kept me separate from support. It kept me separate from relief. Um, And it delayed that process of getting to a place where I was able to say like, that doesn't belong to me. That Mm -hmm. belongs to this supervisor. And now that I'm able to release ownership of this to where it rightfully belongs, I can go about my work and I can do things that are important to me and I can decide how I'm gonna show up here each day. Um, And I get to decide what's next for me. So I think that's like the first step and then sort of baked in there is how do you now reconnect with 
or how do you how do you find the different supports, the community that's going to really really help you navigate. Um, and I think for me, it's been uh, sort of it's it hasn't come all at once. It's been like piece by piece finding the supports, figuring out what works for me. Um, I know for me, it's like definitely mentorship, but it's also being in my own therapy. Um, mm-hmm. I being in my seeing my own therapist. Um, really taking time to focus on moving my body, um, focusing on, and actually this, this only occurred to me, this is like shameful to admit this, but I was walking one day and I realized like I looked up and was noticing like the tree line in our neighborhood. And I was noticing like flowers and the tops Mm -hmm. of people's houses and chimneys. And it hit me at that time that like, I'm always so focused and walking and looking down, right? And not even like allowing myself to take in the thing. So like, those are those are other things too of like, what perspective am I having right now as I'm doing this? Am I constantly looking down? Am I constantly on the grind? Or can I look up and really take in the fullness of what's around me and be that people, environment, opportunities, really soaking that in and taking stock of what I have. Mm. Um, so a couple things that have been helpful for me and also really, really, really trying hard to not work at night or on the weekends, um, which is just its own thing uh, in and of itself, maybe not necessarily dealing with like racist supervisor, but like um, some of that was like, I would get all these text messages and emails and stuff that would challenge my boundaries. Wow. So, you know. It wasn't until, and this is middle of the pandemic because I'm homeless and living with my sister and mom, but certainly there have been nights where I'm supposed to be giving my nephew a bath and I'm on my computer and she's like, listen, you have afforded yourself the ability to please close that computer (laughs) and take this time that you need. And certainly I think that like you're saying, it is a matter of picking our head up from that distraction, especially if it's not value-based work right it's distraction that's racism and saying what is the bigger picture here what are my values and in those times right that work doesn't feel like work it is something that's effortless it is something that you want to do you're not going on this mental health walk but you're (laughs) enjoying right what's outside and you're enjoying the time and the space that you've afforded yourself and I think that that like you're saying, it takes mentorship. For me, it's been mentorship that's above, but mentorship that's lateral, right? Those conversations when we first say, wait, we can get grants? Like they're getting grants? Like yeah. you need a peer to say, yes, you in fact can get that grant, right? And you need a peer who says, no, it's not you. It's that supervisor of yours who's racist or who's treating you this way and that's making you question yourself and your abilities and the work that you're doing and the value that you do bring. Um, so that I think is is so valuable to say those two things, pause, check in with yourself, check in with people who know you, who can remind you of who you are, and then don't be afraid to say, help, 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 and get those resources that you need. And, and Brianna, I think, can speak to this, especially, how do we feel when we're asking for help? Is it that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm beaten down and I need help and I can't do it or is it this is my community and these are my people who are around to help me and this is how we're gonna go get it right and I think that kind of that empowering kind of flipping mindset is one that allows like you said for you to say you know what I need to thank me too right now and I need to thank these people around and and 
I like how, right, that supervisor is just the beginning, but that's not what your story is. And you're able to kind of situate much more from that. Like, okay, that's one second I was looking down, but everything else that I've done since then, in spite of, um, for me, is so meaningful. Yeah. I feel like the reminder to believe in yourself stood out to me more um, because I think a lot of times we're human. We compare ourselves to other people. We compare ourselves to where we think we should be and what we should be doing. And so realizing one of the things I I always say is like the things that are for me don't miss me. Um, And so realizing that in order for me to get the things that don't miss me, I have to believe in myself and know that they're not going to miss me Um, and a part of me also being prepared to receive my blessing is me preparing myself for that Um, and believing in that and I feel like a lot of times there were moments especially for me recently I've doubted um, my ability to get through a lot of things um, just because of not feeling like I have the preparation or the skill set or the 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 necessary things or the things that feel or seem necessary to accomplish the the goal. And so believing that, like you said, like, yeah, I, sh- I shout out myself, right? Like I, if I believe in myself, I did it. Like I did it me, right? And having to have that reminder that first it is believing in yourself and then all the other things follow after that. But if you don't believe in yourself, it becomes a lot harder for you to pick your head up and look at the other things that are happening around you because you feel like this thing that I'm doing is determining who I am and how I appear versus you being strong in who you are and knowing that that does not make you who you are. That is something that you do, not who you are as a person. Uh-huh. So I really appreciate that reminder of believing in yourself and knowing that like, hey, you can look up and smell the roses. You can take that trip. You can do those things and you can still be just as successful, if not more successful than the other people. Mm -hmm. Brianna, when you were talking, it reminded me of, I don't know if you have ever seen, so Disney Channel original movies used to be a whole vibe when I was growing up, Disney Channel original movies. Mm -hmm. There's one called Brink about this. Okay, so Brink, I had to give Tucker a tutorial. He had not seen Brink. And I said, listen, we are buying this for 99 cents and you will watch this and soak in the wisdom. One of the things that Andy Brink Brinkerman says was he's like, skating is like not, is skating is what we do. It's not who we are, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? So that was just reminding me of that. And you know what I also was thinking of when you were talking, Brianna? So my daughter, I have a, I have a four-year-old daughter and I, I spend up quite a bit of time actually thinking about what are the messages that she internalizes from me and from the world around her? How do we think about those things together? How do we process and how do we process the input and how do I think about that input that's going in? And it occurred to me recently, I was like, Charlie doesn't actually know what I do for work. She does not really know what I do for work. And, and it occurred to me when I was showing her this magazine, And sometimes I talk to her about what mommy does and say, you know, sometimes, you know, mommy might be helping listen to somebody who's not feeling well or whatever it might be. I showed her this magazine and I was like, oh, look, this is mommy. This is mommy doing this work and, you know, telling her a little bit about my job. 
And it's actually something that I feel sort of proud about that like, you know, for so long in academia, it does, like you were saying, Brianna, it can become what I do, what I produce is who I am. Mm-hmm. It, because it's sort of like, this is literally if I'm writing out in my CV, this is who I am in academics, but it's not who we are. Um, and so when I think about who my daughter knows, she doesn't know mm-hmm. my work really. She knows that I go to school, mommy's school, right, is where she knows that I go to, but she doesn't know my work. She doesn't think about me in those terms of like what I produce and what grants that I have, what papers that I've written, who is looking up to me or who's looking at me, you know, at work. She doesn't know what it means that I'm at Yale, right? So then when you start to strip those things back, it's like, who am I really? Mm-hmm. And the thing that I get to experience in being her mother is like, oh, I get to know who I really am. Like, who, how am I really showing up, <laughs> you know, in the world and in these different spaces? Um, and so becoming familiar with, with mm-hmm. that and kind of connecting more with that non-work self, that non-psychologist identity um, has been like a miraculous experience for me over these past four years. So hopefully I'm hope, you know, I was talking to a trainee earlier today and they were telling me like, yeah, I'm graduated now. And now I get to do some of the things that are important to me. Like I'm more than just a psychologist. And I was like, yeah. Wow. wow. Yes. And, so and hopefully, you- right. Oh, go ahead, Bree. And you know I'm old. I already forgot what I was about to say. So you really have to. <laughs> oh, brother. What I was gonna say was I think while also reflecting on like who we are as people, we also have to think about our why and what pushed us to get to where we are, the choices that we've made. And so I wanna know why academia? Because you mentioned like feeling like you were behind when you started McNair and feeling like um, there were things that you should have known to prepare. And so what happened in your career that made you say like, okay, I want to take it to academia and I want to stay in this system. Where did that kind of happen? What moment? Was it a light bulb? What kind of things happened for you there? Oh no, Brianna, it was a (laughs) series of things, honestly. I'm just going to go ahead and say, I'm just going to keep it 100% real. The fact that I'm in academia still surprises me all the time. Same, <laughs> like, same, same. I'm literally same. sometimes will be like, what is happening right now? <laughs> what is happening? And furthermore, and I, I usually open orientation up when I, we bring our uh, trainees in every year, July 1st, which happens to be my birthday, which is like super Ooh. rude that I have to work on my birthday every year. <laughs> but um, I... I bring this up in orientation every year and I say like, I would have never imagined Mm. that I would be doing the work that I'm doing now. Um, I would have never imagined that I would be on faculty at Yale, not just because it's Yale, but because I didn't consider myself to be somebody who was like, sometimes now when I open up SPSS and I start to go do statistics, I am still quaking being like, what am I doing? Do I know what I'm doing? I just wouldn't have imagined this trajectory for myself. I would, I have a clinician's heart. And so my, what I really thought for myself was like, I am going to be doing clinical work. I'm going to be working with patients and families. I'm going to be listening to people's stories. And that's what I'm going to be doing. 
that's, that's what I'm going to be doing. I don't know that I feel that draw toward research and academia and grant writing and leadership and administration and all of these different things that I now find myself doing. Um, and then mm-hmm. it turns out that as I was doing, uh, engaging in clinical work, I couldn't fight the fact that naturally things were showing up where I was like, oh, why, why is it that, um, you know, when, when kids are coming into the program, we don't really have a good clear sense of what might be happening for them in terms of symptoms or whatever it may be. Let's look at some data. Do you all have any data? Do you, how do you assess people when they come? And so then all of a sudden, these questions start to emerge, the inquiry starts to emerge. And then, um, somebody said to me, like, you are a clinician who is like a seek, you're like an undercover researcher and under the guise of doing things like, you know, quality improvement and, you know, observing clinical processes and making, you know, providing feedback about what you think could be different and really trying to understand if this is effective or not. That's research. I had had this vision in my mind of what research really was and what it meant. Um, and so I don't know that I said to myself, I'm going to be you know, in academia, I still mm-hmm. sometimes think like, how did I actually get into this job that I'm in right now? <laughs> um, but I think it's that there were these, there are these qualities and um, sort of ways of thinking about things that have always been there. Mm-hmm. And now that I've allowed myself to say like, oh, that actually is how research happens. That is how scholarship happens. That is how leadership happens is you decide what your values are, you decide how you're going to show up and you talk with other people and help and support them um, and lift them up, lift their ideas and creativity up. That's leadership. And I was like, oh, it me. (laughs) That's what I'm doing. Um, Yeah. I don't, I mean, what do you think, Dr. Mesker? How did you, did you decide? Was there a decision point where you were like, this is what I'm doing? Let me tell you, on postdoc, I had a argument, I will call it, with my two mentors at the time who listened to this podcast. So, hey, Dr. Danielson and Dr. De Ariano, who told me if I was making a choice between clinical work and they're in soft money and soft money versus hard money, and I chose clinical work, I would be cutting off my academic legs, right? So I had a moment with them where I had to decide between kind of clinical work and academia. I had a moment when I first got my job at the University of Georgia. Uh, well, Brianna wasn't here either. So she, I didn't apply for a tenure track position. I applied to be clinic director. And like you, I just talked about collecting data so much that they called me back and said, um, ma'am, you need to come back again to <laughs> another job talk. I came to Georgia twice to do job talks. And I was still fighting it. I did the job talk. They gave me a tenure track position. I shook our then department's hair and chair's hand when I got here. And I said, listen, I'm not here for tenure. <laughs> I'm just here to tell you I'm here to do the work. So at no point, I still haven't made that decision. I'm here for a good time, not a long time. <laughs> I'm here to do my work. I'm not here for right what, what you were saying I need to do. I'm here to do what I want to do. And I'm going to stumble upon tenure, but tenure in academia has never been the goal very much. So it's been, I've wanted to do this work with black youth and families. But if I say I'm going to do that, even in the community, where's the evidence that this work works, right? Where is the evidence that what I'm saying hasn't been working could work better. 
and having to prove and show that and to say, oh, okay, this is how you do it. And this is how you can train people in doing the very same work so that, right, the work that we know works one-on-one, those people are also able to do. So I'm heavily invested in training clinicians, but right, you got to collect data on those trainings and you have to show the evidence for that work as well. Um, So for me, academia has been (laughs) a venue to do the work that I've wanted to do, but Brianna is my grad student and I've told her, right, we make sure that your CV is tight, like you said, Dr. Childs, that you're beyond reproach in that ways. But after that, baby girl, you have to take that time to restore and recover and make sure that you're able to come back and feel recharged while you're doing this work and make sure that you're able to check those sources that might otherwise have you questioning your why or questioning your ability or questioning your independence while working within a larger collective, right? So I think that all of those things for me, those values of family, of community building, of community strengths, um, and of wanting evidence behind what we show has just somehow landed me here in academia, but certainly no, (laughs) it was never the goal. It was never the goal. The goal was always training when I was in in training and then the goal became impact. And now the goal has become amplifying that work. And that's, that's how I ended up at Yale, right? Wanting to go from community and seeing, okay, what's the public health? How can I, you know, reach a larger uh, portion of the population, but it's always been towards the work that I want to do and not the, um, I think the the colonized way of getting there. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's a lot of the work that other lab members are trying to accomplish as well. And Brianna is one who, right, I work with kids. She works with Black adults and Black women. So she's taking the little bit of work that I do and amplifying it to larger populations. And I think that in terms of mentorship, in terms of student training, that for me is what makes it impactful as well. Because otherwise, no, we're not doing these things for fun, right? We're doing them for the value. Um, that they get and the work that we're able to see others do as well. Yeah. I've really, I'm curious to hear what you're thinking about this, Brianna, but I, I mean, I've really, I, when I was coming up, I, when I was coming up, when I was growing <laughs> up, I just saw one model of what it meant to be an academic. And that was the model of like, you have a research lab, you write for grants, you, you know, you teach um, trainees that are coming in. And I wasn't sure that that was the right fit for me. So that's why, you know, I'm always sort of surprised that this is what I'm doing. I'm a person who really likes to come up with processes and then try the processes out. So it turns out now I'm almost, I'm not an implementation scientist. I cannot claim that whatsoever, but I do, I I do a lot of implementation based work and quality improvement work. And so it really, it just harkens back to, you know, coming in wanting to create and design something that's going to improve upon a process. And it turns yeah. out I'm really good yeah. at creating these processes. And then other people want to learn about the processes that work um, and be trained kind of like what you're talking about, um, Dr. Metzger, like train people in what these processes are. How do I provide the support and the implementation tools and the resources to really help people be able to replicate this so that they can also benefit other patient and family lives? How do we scale some of this information out there? And it was because other colleagues that were seeing me do this work in different spaces. So I started out in an adolescent intensive outpatient program. And I remember, so I did a talk. So concretely, how did I get here? I did a talk um, for uh, the psychology doctoral interns 
And yeah. it was it was a talk on inpatient psychiatry for adolescents and wow. really thinking about the diagnosis of a clinical milieu as well as a staff milieu and to think about the complex interplay between those mm-hmm. two dynamics because they functioned as like sort of these identities within that inpatient unit. And then how did I sort of understand what was happening with the different kids and teenagers? So I did this talk and somebody watched that talk and afterward they were like, do you want a job in our intensive outpatient adolescent <laughs> program? It just so happens that we need a psychologist who has your expertise. And I was like, expertise, what? So I'm looking behind me right now to be like, is are they talking to me? Um, somebody with your expertise, right? And so I stepped up into that position. It was actually a risk for me because it was a half-time position. I was mm. leaving a full-time position that I was in. And so um, I had a lot of these like conversations with my husband about like, should I do this? Is this the right thing? Because as I said, I operate with a pragmatic edge at all times, no matter what, you know, I want to make sure that I'm squared away. Mm-hmm. Um, and so at that time I decided like, I'm going to start a business. I'm going to start my own private practice. And I think Dr. Metzger did not reach out to you at some point to be like, I'm getting ready to start this private practice. Is this wild? And you were like, no, you're going to start the business and you're going to run the business. I remember. (laughs) And then you did the same thing when I did my first grant and I sent the application. I said, oh my God, what if I get this? And you were like, you're going to run the grant. And I was like, but I've never run a grant before. (laughs) Every step of the way, you're just going to do it. You're going to write it. You're going to run it. It's going to be great. Yeah. And I did. And I had my own very successful um, private practice where I was honored to be able to to work with kids and teenagers in my local community and really um, just was able to be poured. It, you know, I just, I, I feel so honored to have worked with those kids and, and teenagers, but I also had this 50% appointment and then this opportunity sort of grew over time because I was making those observations about things that I thought could be different. And when I took that position specifically, I was going to be Um, one of the only, if not the only at the time, and then there were more clinicians that came on later. Maybe there was a clinician who was there, but she was shifting roles. Um, Black providers in that setting. And I was like, Mm -hmm. the teenagers that are coming through this particular program will not ever have access to a psychologist with my level of expertise and training um, because of, you know, the, the, um, the way that the program was set up, et cetera. Um, unless I come and do this work and I'm going to be the psychologist that they get to see and they have a corrective experience with. So I was coming off a postdoc, right? And I had just had the racism and I'm still, you know, the racism is all around us, but you know what I'm saying? Um, So I came in with that fervor and then these research ideas and things started to develop over time. Um, And I had trainees that were coming to work with me and I was taking on practicum students and I was thinking together with them about educational offerings. And then I decided, oh, we're going to provide educational offerings for all of our staff and clinicians. And so I'm going to call my friend, Dr. Aisha Metzger, to come and do a special talk for us and a special training series. We put together like this whole training series. So we were really thinking about how do we enrich this program? How do we think about bringing measurement-based care, which is... Um, I, I'm happy to talk a little bit about that, but this is a clinical practice that uses objective measures about what the patient says is happening in their treatment. Mm-hmm. Not what I say is happening or is effective, but what they say is happening. And to use that to get curious together 
to invite a discussion about what is working well in this, what do we need to change and shift to really empower that person to be in the driver's seat of their care, which is as it should be. Um, how do we incorporate that in the treatment that we're providing? How do we implement that? How do we teach other people how to do that? Um, and then the, you know, that work positioned me in a way where when an opportunity came around, I was able to really um, take hold of that. I'm thinking, Brianna, about what you were saying about preparing yourself mm -hmm. to kind of receive back the work. I think you used the word blessings, but like receive back mm -hmm. the work that you put in. Mm -hmm. um, so I was in my basement getting ready to get on my Peloton. Or okay, was, there you go. I was in the basement and I was getting, getting ready to work out. And I get a phone call from the same person who saw me do that lecture a couple of years ago. And they said, Amber, did you see that there is this training director, this associate training director position that just got posted? I wonder if you would be interested in applying to that. And I said to the person, I don't know what you're talking about. I could never be a, a training director of anything. Like, what are you saying? And they were like, read, I'm going to forward you the email, read it, and then let me know. So I read it and they were like, and call me back in 30 minutes. So I was like, oh, okay. So I read it. I called him, I called the person back and I was like, okay, I, I will apply for this associate direct training director position. And I thought, if nothing else, mm. this is going to be an opportunity for me to come to the attention of the senior leadership in the department, because I want them to know who I am, to know what I work on, to know what's important to me. And I'm going to start to show people the work mm. that I'm doing. Wow. And I don't intend to get this job. It is not my intention to get this job. I don't, I don't, I don't imagine that I'm going to get the job. So then I, I am in the parking lot. I went to Ann Taylor. I bought my first ever suit off the rack and I bought a uh, petite as well, because, you know, because I'm usually having to buy stuff and then roll up the legs and, and safety pin them and do everything else. I bought my first ever suit from the petite rack from the store. I was in the parking lot wow. getting ready to interview for this position. And I'm literally shaking. And I'm thinking to myself, what am I doing? Can I do this? And then I kind of like pump myself up and I was like, you will go in here and you will show this group of people who you are and wow. what's important to you because you belong here. Um, and so I walk in there and I decide to myself also, like, I'm also going to be my, I can't be anybody except for myself because. Woo, Cause uh, then it don't come out right. Wow. Because then who, if, if I did get this job, what, who would actually have to show up there every day? <laughs> it would be me. So wow. then hmm. I came away with that position. Yeah. And wow. Uh, it, it was originally going to be an associate director position. And then it kind of got elevated to this co-director position and then to the full director of the, of the training program. Um, and so I, I think back about this idea of like, first believe yourself, right. Yeah. That you can do these things and that what you have is valuable and worthy and meaningful. Um, and even when you are like teetering a little bit about that, <laughs> you know, like tap into whatever, uh, resources you have to sort of like, I'm going to show up as who I believe myself to be, even if I don't feel that right now in this moment, I'm going to act opposite to that feeling of like running away. So I was sweating in that suit, but I showed up as my full self. And I think that resonated. And so, you know, I have this training director position and over time I started to, to work, to carve out kind of like how I did when my advisor went away a way to have the work that I was doing in the implementation space and in the measurement-based care space mm. formalized and recognized. And so that then came um, 
in the form of this co-director of the Division of Quality and Innovation role, which, um, yeah, so we, <laughs> I'm super excited about that work. We're doing measurement-based care now across uh, all of what we call our delivery networks, which is across the Yale New Haven health system. All of our ambulatory mm -hmm. services are, are implementing the processes that I had developed in those very early days when I came to the IOP and was like, do y'all, what do y'all think about this idea of like, if we measure like something that was happening? about midpoint assessment? <laughs> right, right. Now I didn't make up measurement-based care, but I did, I was sort yeah. of able to help um, bring that into that space. Yeah, wow. certain, we, we certainly know that these things exist, but they're not commonly utilized in community-based mental health. So we hear what you're saying, and we do understand the value and the need and the importance of that as well. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's giving celebrity. It's giving bag talk. It's giving big, <laughs> big one, not the little one. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Now, my newest wow. evolution, though, was really because, as I said at the beginning, I had had this aversion because of all the internalized racism and oppression mm, mm. of moving away from diversity-based work. Yeah. And I decided, you know, when I came to Yale and actually the, the sort of evolution has been in the past couple of years of really saying like, no, I'm, you know, I, I'm, the, I'm the training director. I'm co-directing the division of quality and debate. I know some stuff about some stuff. My work is valued here. I'm gonna step into a, a new space for me Wow. And really exercise outwardly mm. what I, uh, what's, what's important to me. And so that then um, has manifested in, in, you know, co co-chairing the division or not the division, but the um, diversity equity and inclusion committee within the internship program. Wow. And now going on to co-chair um, we have what's called an education. We have a, an anti-racism task force that's happening in our department right now, which is one of our largest mm. Um, efforts in the department. It's been going on for about two years. And I was invited to be the co-chair of what's called the education subcommittee of that task force, mm. um, as well as serve on the steering committee for that task force. And then the other thing that I do now is I got my first ever grant in life. Um, I, I remember texting it to you saying, I can't believe this just happened. <laughs> um, my first ever little baby grant, but that now has grown yeah. Um, into the hundreds of thousands of dollars yeah. of like yeah. money and support that we've um, pulled together from, you know, internally uh, from within Yale to support this effort. Um, it's called the Getting Racism Out of Our Work Curriculum. And it's designed specifically for mm -hmm. supervisors, wow. right? To be able to learn how to one, have the foundational knowledge and awareness related to equity, diversity, and inclusion, starting with themselves as the supervisor tool, mm. right? So what is my racial identity development? What do I bring? How do I investigate, interrogate, dismantle the power and privilege, the race, you know, whatever it is that's showing up in my supervision with my trainee? Um, and then also sort of how do I advance that and start to think about things like intersectionality and mm. think about structural competence and integrate that not only into my hopefully clinical work, but into the teaching and training and super, you know, mentorship that I do. So kind of going back to that experience that I had in postdoc, right, that damaging experience of wondering, like, am I going to am I going to quit? Am I going to quit this job. Like I'm, I'm on postdoc thinking like I'm quitting psychology. Right. And so now just thinking about going back to full circle and having my first ever funded project 
be getting racism out of our work and really supporting supervisors so that we can start to disrupt that cycle of damage and trauma that can happen for trainees of color, you know, in these spaces. Um, so yeah, so that, so that is my new evolution now of like really trying to dive into um, and not be afraid or secretive or in the shadows uh, about diversity work and, and how it's actually a core pillar of who I am and what I do. For me, it spoke to me because it was you highlighting your passion at the root of all of it um, and realizing that that passion, even though academia wasn't something you thought about, it pushed you in into spaces that you weren't like, oh, maybe, right? Like the passion was the thing. And I think a lot of times when I talk to other Black graduate students, a lot of the conversations are, I don't want to be in academia because of things that you mentioned. Like, encountering racism and knowing that racism is very pervasive in academia and so students are deterred they're like I don't want to keep dealing with this for the rest of my life I don't want to keep doing this thing I don't want to have to keep feeling like I have to perform and feeling like I have to sell myself and show my worth and do all of these extra tap dancing type things right um to be in this space and so I think you being able to recognize like that's not what I was doing you know I didn't think about it from the context of like yes this is racist right like I get that I also know that I want to make an impact and my passion is pushing me and so whatever that looks like sure I'm willing to do it and also just taking taking an opportunity to like walk out on a limb and say like this is what I'm going to do this is the impact that I want to make I'm willing to make that impact in whatever way feels good to me um, and also, like you said, having that support and that that guidance and that that community to be able to thrive and to be able to do those things, um, because it does feel sometimes like it's the impossible. You know, I feel like we always are having these back and forth conversations. Do I stay? Do I go? Mm-hmm. Do I keep going? Do I do I maybe stick my foot in, but not stick both feet in? Do I you know, so like being able to hear both of you talk about this, not necessarily decision, but this drive that kind of came through just my personal goals and my values and how that put me in different spaces, not because I changed who I was, but because I was very strict on who I was. And I allowed that to speak for itself versus allowing what I think will get me to the next step to push me Um, So I really appreciate that perspective uh, because I feel like we always think like, how did I get there? Like, how do these Black faculty stay in academia? Because for us, we feel like it's hell on, it's hell on earth. But like, how are you guys able to stay in it? And so being able to hear you reflect on what pushed you to that point, but then also what got you here and how you're able to find and fulfill yourself and staying here has been really helpful for me as a graduate student, so thank you. And you are part of the reason why we stay, (laughs) right? Like, it's so important to think about the little ambers that are, you know, around and needing to see. I mean, I've had trainees, I'm sure that you've had this too, Dr. Metzger, like trainees will say to me, I, one of the reasons why I chose this program was because I knew I was going to be able to have a black training director and to be able to 
like, and what that meant in, in terms of what I was talking about were important um, agenda items for me and the kind of program we wanted to run. Um, and, and not just trainees of color saying this, white people saying this to me of like, this is really important to us. So I think about that, that, that sort of um, responsibility, but also privilege of being able to show up in that way for other graduate students and people who are coming behind, I think, as you had said at the beginning, Brianna. Um, and I never know for sure what's going to happen with me in my career. Usually every three years, I start to get this like itch of like needing to do something new and feel something new. And usually what it's culminated in is some new role that I'm doing within the same space that I'm in. So maybe I am just going to be staying here in academia <laughs> like <laughs> once and for all. Um, but every couple of years, I get this desire to like get curious about what's happening in different spaces and how are people thinking about things like you know, when, when COVID hit and I um, architected the, um, the sort of virtual IOP strategy for our ambulatory services, I thought like, oh, wait, could I pursue, you know, digital mental health and virtual care? Like, wait a minute, this is a new, <laughs> like I said, I'm good at designing processes. And so I designed that process and then wrote about it. And I was like, oh my goodness, the digital mental health space, like, let me talk to me, tell me what's <laughs> happening over there. What are y'all doing for measurement-based care? How are y'all thinking about reaching out to the black youth? What yeah. are the services that are happening? And so it's like, how do I map on what I'm doing now into these different spaces mm -hmm. to feed that mm -hmm. curiosity? Um, so the nice thing about this kind of job yeah. is that you can, you can both do a lot of things and you can do a lot of things. So <laughs> I'm usually doing the most, <laughs> like, so, but you can do so many different things and explore all different kinds of interests. So there is some like benefits and freedoms as much as there are you know, challenges and, and trials. Are we like 9,000 hours over time? I'm so sorry. You are, and I was about to just speak life into Brianna because a lot of the things that you were saying right now about kind of your early journey, as well as what, where you are currently, I'm seeing her in this, right? You even talked about a, a task force that you guys have started in your department. And it sounds like there's just so much faculty involvement and you have a lot of different stakeholders who are at play. Brianna's doing that at, at UGA right now by herself with our racial trauma task force. Which, right? So it is, it is um, I think for me, inspiring, hopefully for her, she's able to see herself in your trajectory. Mm -hmm. She's able to see, and I tell her all the time, like, baby girl, you're five steps ahead of where I was at this time. At this time, we literally were running from diversity work because no one listens. <laughs> Nothing is impactful. We're not able to make any change. There are all these gatekeepers. There are people who want to ask questions but not do anything, right? And you guys, as grad students, I'll say you in particular, are at a place where you were able to and have been utilizing your own individual strengths way earlier than we were in our trajectory. Listen, we're D and B trying to figure <laughs> right. out what right. we're you drink out of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, for me, this has just been so insightful and, and inspirational just for, you know, old Aisha, but also just looking at Brianna and seeing what other graduate students are doing and can be doing with their individual trajectories, as long as, and we talk about this all the time, right? Remember your why, remember your value and why you're doing the work and instill that into literally everything that you touch. That's from writing discussion questions for class. That's from drafting a, a hypothetical grant and then saying, wait, yeah, I just imagined something, but I'm going to submit that thing and I'm going to get that funded, right? Inventory. And 
inventory. She has it. She has it. Her master's thesis that she just talked about defending, right? She didn't use any secondary data analysis. She went and collected her own data because she had this specific research interest um, in this area of graduate studies that she wants to impact. So just seeing that she's leaving that paper trail so early on and starting to think about herself and her why for me, um, it's just really inspirational. I, I appreciate you, Dr. Charles, for sharing that part of your journey. Oh, of course. Brianna, I'm so excited to know <laughs> you now. Oh my no, gosh, truly. I'm going to be following you no, me. from afar. Oh, truly me. you. Yeah. Please. Yes. I'm excited oh to know you because I my mind has been blown. Like truly, I... Brianna said, wait, I can direct an internship? Sure can. Listen. Sure can. And I think even just thinking yes. about like as I'm preparing, because essentially like I'm preparing for internships. So like you talking about the things that matter to you and that give me giving me things that I should think about of like what do I want in a supervisor? What are things that I feel like I would need in a supervisor and being able to reflect on that, but also seeing the spectrum of what a supervisor can be, right? Like seeing the passion that you have the the change that you're inflicting in the world, the change that you're making, whether to some it feels very small, but you know, you're like, yeah, I did this little thing, but like you're changing a whole consortium of how people think about how they do their job. You're, you're changing how people approach providing care to other people and training people how to provide care. So like, for me, I was like, this is, this is nuts. Like I, I'm literally in shock. And I also am grateful to have been here for this conversation because I think I saw a lot of myself in this conversation. And that's always a fulfilling part for me is being able to see myself in the people that I talk to and know that like, hey, there are people who've done this before that you can talk to other people who can, you know, pour into you a little bit and be able to help you get through those moments where it feels impossible and it feels like, hey, I'm the only one or like, hey, this is just me. You know, I'm having to break and create these generational, these generational wealth, I guess you can say, or just generational traditions, like having to build that up and know that other people have had to do that and they've had to figure it out over time. And so I'm extremely appreciative of you, what you shared. Um, I want to talk to you after this because- Oh, of course, Brianna. I want to talk to you after this. This is amazing. I, you know, this has been such a nice conversation for me too, because this is, this is like that mirror that we were talking about very early on of like having somebody reflect back to you. Wow. Um, you really are phenomenal. Look at the work that you're doing. Look at look at how you're thinking about things. Look at the impact that you're making. Um, I don't know that I, I'm trying to create more space for that in my life to say, to take a step back and say, wow, what I'm doing is really, really um, you know, remarkable. So the joke, oh Lord, I've got something in my eye too. So that joke of like, I'm, I'm, I'm here to thank me. Like some of that is really like trying to practice, you know, wow, you're, you're doing an amazing things. Like Brianna, would you have even thought unless Dr. Metzger was like, oh, Hey, just by the way, 
this anti-racism task force that, you know, I most certainly cannot take credit for creating some incredible, an incredible scholar who actually I'm super lucky that she's a mentor of mine and I get to drink coffee with her on Friday mornings, <laughs> actually created. <laughs> her name is Dr. Cindy Crusto. Oh, love Cindy. Yeah, Cindy. First black full professor in the Department of Psychiatry in the history of the Department of Psychiatry. And, and just I had a baby. And I want to talk to you about that because um, this is the very last question that I want to ask. It ties <laughs> into that. Um, and it's yes. related to Brianna because I think that she's in a unique position. She's in one that I was never in in grad school. Um, and I think that you serve a really good example of this. And I'll say that because Dr. Childs, when, the day I met you, you knew Tucker was your husband, okay? Um, <laughs> <laughs> Charlie came much later, but yes. you were claiming Tucker before Tucker knew he was your husband. Right, and right, I think, right. I think that that- um, Now he that, has a beard, y'all. Oh. Did you put a beard on Tucker? Yes, the pandemic helped us. I mean, literally, I I love I could sp- I could spend two podcasts talking about Tucker and Charlie. Uh, well, give us a give us a little touch, a little taste of it, um, in terms of how you were able to create and maintain that balance from undergrad all the way up until now. You did m- mention he was at um M- or he was in Atlanta when you were trying to get to Emory, but you ended up in Tennessee. So how? was that process for you of juggling work and life and keeping in mind for you what was most important? Tucker has always, I I think in some ways, this is the one thing that I just haven't earned. Tucker is, I have been so incredibly lucky. He's the most, he's so incredibly supportive. I don't think that he has to even think or work super hard in those early days to like figure out what supports I needed. And he's always the person who I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't take this job at 50%. He's like, of course we you can. This is exactly how we're gonna do it. And like, this is all the things that you already bring. And this is your value and your worth and all your contributions. And don't forget about this and that and the other. Um, so he's just an, like inherently that number one cheerleader support person and has always been willing and has always recognized. I mean, he's, he talks all the time. He'll say like, I can't believe you married me. Like, you're so <laughs> smart. Like, how do you know all these different things? Or, you know, you're, you're so accomplished. Like he's a, he's a good reminder of those different things for me, but in terms of the boundaries. So like when, then when I had my daughter starting in 2018, um, I think I had like something happen in my amygdala that like changed forever where I was like, not your fear. <laughs> I, I was like, because it, what it does is it opens up the, like, wow. I, I can hear at the, like, you could never, I, I mean, I can hear something from 12 streets away if it's my child saying <laughs> my name or something like that. Um, but also it opened up like this softness and this tenderness that drew me toward mm. wanting to preserve boundaries. So mm. now it's something that I do and I have to stake that claim. You know, the boundaries that you set around like your writing day and you're like, this is my writing day. I'm not scheduling any meetings on this day. And then you do schedule a bunch of meetings on that day, but you fight and you stake that claim of like, this is the boundary. The boundaries that I, I set for my daughter, fluid, I don't have to think about them. I will fight for them like without even realizing that I'm fighting for them. Like, it's not a question for me. It's like, she is one of the, she is the most important person and so whatever I need to do, and if I feel like I'm not showing up for her in the way that I want to be showing up for her, whatever that thing is, got to go. Bye. Can't do it. So sorry. See you later. I leave here at 4.45 PM when I'm traveling it, when I used to live in uh, or work in New Haven. Um, 
that was a 40th slip because sometimes you really do be feeling like you live at work. <laughs> I was living at New Haven, right? But I was living at New Haven. So, but I was like, oh no, I have to leave at 445 and I will have a conference call on my commute down or my commute back. But like at 445 is when I end. Um, and then when I get into my house, I'm in my house now and I'm gone and blanked out from, from everything else that's going on because I want to be with her, reading with her, you know, exploring with her. Now the pandemic has been interesting. We spent a lot of time and hours together um, here and, and there was those challenges of needing to be able to separate and kind of balance out work and being a mom. But I have this amazing friend and colleague who, who really taught me this idea of like, you know, being a parent or being, you know, that's a role. You don't just, you're, you're a full-time mom and you're a full-time psychologist. You don't turn off the role of being a full-time mom. You work full-time and you're a mom full-time. And the idea of like, this is a role that I occupy and I don't switch it on or off at certain times of day allows me to more clearly stake out like what those boundaries are um, for myself. Um, so yeah, I don't know if I've even answered that question or not, but long loop Tucker and Charlie. We love that. Let me show y'all. So the, the people are not going to see this, but I have to just show you two. They are. We're doing it. Yeah. We're doing YouTube now. Show them. Oh, okay. I'm going to just show you my computer screen background. Oh, I can't share. Yeah, you can watch. Okay. Do it again. Okay. Let's try it again. Um, so I'm going to show you just this background super fast. So this is Charlie Sue. And this is back, this is last September. So she's totally different now. She's like such a big girl. It blows me away. But this is my Susie girl. Um, and this is Tucker's side of his head. And here's the beard. Here's the beard you gave him. <laughs> Yay! And this is me looking so good. <laughs> so <laughs> September of 2021. So we need to refresh this and you can I see. love the fall. Oh, this is so cute. Yeah. So truly you would see such a change even in her. I mean, she's playing soccer now. Uh, she is doing dance. She's doing tap and ballet. No and more just baby shark on repeat. That's all I remember from my visit. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yes. Yes. Uh, she, oh my gosh. She tells jokes. She <laughs> tells jokes. She's like really good at telling jokes. She's got an amazing yeah. memory. Yeah. Everybody's kids are the smartest and everybody's like babies advanced or whatever. But, but Charlie truly is. <laughs> Now we needed to have a, a, a part two of this podcast at some point and do a whole episode on negotiate. Cause I'm thinking about this theme that you have raised, I think Brianna and encouraged us to tap into about like knowing your value, knowing your worth and really yes. honoring that. And I have to say that that also comes in the form of compensation with money. Okay. So we're going to have Dr. Christina Campbell. She just released the book, the ABCs of negotiating. And our guest will also be Dr. Amber Childs. We're going to run it back very soon. This note is for Dominique, our producer to help schedule this. (laughs) Absolutely. We need to have this conversation. We need to talk about sponsorship. We need to talk about money. We got to talk about that, the sort of the wrestling that people have in there internally with like, Am I really living consistently with my values if I also want to get paid well? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. And the answer is yes. The answer is you don't yes. have to choose between being a good person and getting paid well for what you mm-hmm. do. Uh, I remember like in those early McNair days, 
um, we had somebody do a talk and she was having like a slide advancer in her hand. And that was back in the day when slide advancers were like money. That was like <laughs> that was charges on a credit card for a slide advancer, yeah, right? Yeah. A USB plug-in. Yeah. And I remember her like having trouble with it. It wasn't advancing the slides. And somebody said to her like, oh, well, how does this work? You know, where'd you get this? And she goes, I don't know, I didn't pay for this. And then she looked over at us in the audience and she was like, and that's the goal. I didn't pay for this <laughs> and yet I have it, right? So it's like yeah. th this sort of other hidden piece of like talking about money. Yeah, um, I wow. think it's a really big piece of education for, um, for me in an ongoing way. And I think for people entering into this space in any type of way. Listen, part two coming up for those listeners who are interested, if you have any questions about negotiating, if you have any questions specific to Dr. Childs, if you have any questions about grad school, how to get in, finding your purpose, send those questions to theempowerlab at gmail.com. Dr. Childs, thank you so thank you, very thank you, much. Thank you. Wow. Follow me on Twitter. I have 12 followers. Tell us how we can find you. I yes. just created my Twitter. So it's whatever she's, she's, you know, um, so it's at Dr. Amber C on Twitter. Um, and I tweet a lot about measurement based care. I'm the co-founder of the Yale measurement, measurement based care collaborative. And so there's also a Yale measurement based care collaborative Twitter. So follow us on there. For lots of insight. Did you say you have 12 followers, please? You have 69, please. Oh, come well, on, let's... girl. You're going to have 71 by the end of this. <laughs> I'm going to follow you. Here we go. Let's get it. Thank you so much. And Brianna, it was just a pleasure meeting you. Wow. I'm so excited for everything that's next for you. I can't believe you're in graduate school. Like, it's just amazing. Isn't she shiny still? I said, wow. Just stay shiny. <laughs> stay bright. We need How long you. do you have left, Brianna? Uh, two years and then internship. So wow. Three. Well, it's actually, it. just kidding, because I'm a rising fourth year, so a year and then internship. And then internship. Okay, you were like, "Oh, I'm getting ready to apply for internship," and I was like, "Wait, three years? You're me. You're." But you got to think about it. She's thinking about it. You do. You're tracking hours already. You're already mm -hmm. finding those practicums that will allow you to say that you can go to the internship that you're interested in. She already. She's thinking about her trajectory. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. Wow. Well, I hope we see your application come through at some point in a couple years. Yes. You know, we love to send people in our in our footsteps or in our footsteps. So yeah, she's gonna have to go up to New Haven just for a little bit and then come right back down. Yes. We really appreciate you, Dr. Child. Thank you, you so are much. Such a light and such a joy. Thank you both. This has been, I'm going to carry this throughout my day of kind of like, oh my gosh. Wasn't it so great, Brianna? You are a light.